Welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Good morning, everybody. I am Haley Cotton, and I'm a Covenant community member at The Well. And I serve in our uh, kids' ministry with pre-K. Um, and I attend the Highland CG. And I will be reading our scripture today. We're going to be in Amos 5. We're going to get into 1 through 7, and then 14 through 17. And then we'll head on over to 7 and go through 1 through 6. Okay. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over into Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing." Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. And now seven, one through six. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord God relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord God relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Yo, that was fire. Uh, I had to watch that a few times, and you catch like a a nugget of gold every time you watch it. So I'd encourage y'all to watch it again. But hey, what's up? I'm Yusuf. I'm the college director. I'm sorry. This isn't some sort of performance. That was a weird intro. Uh, (laughs) Look what I can do. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm excited to be here as we continue on in our journey through the book of Amos, um, as we are now in week five of our Justice and Mercy sermon series. And so um, I'm going to echo something Tori said last week, and that is that every sermon in this series kind of builds on itself. So um, check out uh, previous week's sermons if you have not already. So far, we've talked about things like why justice matters, God's heart for justice. Last week, we talked about religious injustice. 
Uh, and what we're talking about today is actually going to be really heavy. But my hope is that it's also helpful for us in many ways. But before we dive in, a quick story. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was meeting with Jason, who's our exec- executive pastor here. Uh, we were meeting for our one-on-one, and, you know, the meeting started how most ministry-related meetings start. You know, hey, how's your heart? How you doing? And I personally was battling a few uh, heavy things that week, and so I began to speak on it. And as I was sharing how heavy I was, Jason asked me a very deep yet direct question. Which, side note, if you know Jason, that's not surprising, okay? What takes me 10 minutes to say, he can say in two seconds. It truly is a gift. But as I was laying out some of this heaviness, he asked me very plainly, hey, what do you do with that? You see, he didn't just want to know what it was that was producing the heaviness. He wanted to know what I do with the heaviness. Now, why would he ask that? Because he knows, like we do, that there are a million different ways that we can handle and cope with the heaviness of life, but not all of the ways that we handle that heaviness are healthy. And so that simple question of what do you do with that heaviness proved to be a very important question for me to answer to ensure that I was navigating this heaviness in a healthy way. Now, why do I share that? Because the very same question that Jason asked me is the question that I want to ask you, but with a little twist. What do you do with the heaviness that comes not from your uh, personal circumstances, but the heaviness produced when you hear about injustice happening all over the world? What do you do with that? How do you handle news of corporate injustice? What do you do when you hear that according to the UN uh, World Food Program, ever since the Taliban took over Afghanistan's government, 95% of Afghans don't have enough food to eat. And that peaceful protesters are arrested, tortured, and many of them put to death without due process. Where does your mind go when you read that so far 26,000 people, innocent people, have been killed in the war between Israel and Hamas, with 70% of those deaths being women and children under the age of 18? What what does your heart feel when you hear that in 2023, on average, 13 Christians were killed a day for their faith? Are you starting to feel the heaviness that I'm talking about? And yet I haven't even scratched the surface on just how much injustice there is in the world. Yet the heaviness is palpable. And so today's question is a weighty one, but it's a simple one. That heaviness that we feel, what do we do with that? What do we do when we come face to face with global corporate injustice? As God's people, how do we address it? What do we do? That's the question. And the short answer to that question is that we align our hearts with God's heart. But our passage in Amos will help us see clearly what what that practically looks like. So before we get to our passage, one thing I do want to address is two common um, responses to corporate injustice that I've personally experienced or witnessed. And I want to address them, these two common responses, before we jump into our passage, because knowing them will actually help the wisdom from Amos stick all the more. You see, these two common responses are kind of like two extremes on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is the response of indifference. Maybe we hear of injustice around the world, and it overwhelms our subconscious to to contemplate just how much evil exists. 
So as a result, something in us just turns off at the news of global injustice. We become apathetic. We effectively close our eyes and plug our ears to the sound of suffering around the world as a way to numb ourselves to its reality. Or rather than sit in the discomfort of, of heaviness slash oppression, we minimize it or invalidate it. And so the problem with this extreme is that it communicates that we don't care. But God does care about injustice, therefore we should too. So there has to be a better way of handling the heaviness of corporate injustice than indifference. So we have indifference on one end, but on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, is to be extremely outraged, but not, not just regular outrage or indignation, but the type of indignation that, that doesn't just stop at righteous anger, it slowly morphs into ill will towards people with privilege. And this is really common among Christians who maybe uh, go overseas to do missions work for the first time. And they see poverty like they've never seen it before and it rocks them to the core. But then they come back to America and they don't see poverty, they see privilege. They hear us complain about how the AC is not working at church or other first world problems. And that righteous indignation towards corporate injustice they've witnessed slowly morphs into ill will towards people with privilege. I've seen this happen. Now, don't get me wrong, yes and amen to being enlightened to our privileges in the West as a way to stay grounded and grateful for what we have. I am all for that. We 100% need to be reminded that clean water, running electricity, constant electricity, these are all luxuries. Like even for me personally, the other day, I was complaining about my iPhone taking too long to charge up and like boot back up. And as I was complaining about that, all it took was for me to just picture my ancestors hearing me complain about that and then being like, no, no, sir, right? That's all it took for me to snap out of it. I'm all for that, all for being exposed to different perspectives as to not take for granted the, the privilege we experience in the West. But if bitterness is a part of how you respond, then something seems off there as well. And that's not me saying that we're off the hook as Westerners because to whom much is given, much is required, which means it's not about how much privilege you have or whether or not you have privilege. The question is, are we using our privilege to promote justice and mercy in a world that seeks to take advantage of the weak and vulnerable? How do we address corporate injustice in a healthy and godly way without growing indifferent? or allowing our anger towards injustice to make enemies of other people, maybe people with privilege. I believe there's wisdom we can glean from our passage in Amos today that if applied will, will help us, will allow us to address corporate injustice in a way that keeps us from falling into either extreme and ultimately brings glory to God. So that's where we're going today. And it's gonna be a little heavy. Now as Amos, um, Amos is no stranger to corporate injustice. A quick recap. He's a farmer, a shepherd from Judah, who God calls to hike 10 miles north to Israel to address their utter corruption. So now Israel has tons of prosperity, tons of privilege, but they're not using it to lift the lowly as God called them to, but rather they're taking advantage of the weak and the vulnerable for selfish gain. And this angers the heart of God. And this, if we're going to define corporate injustice, this is really the essence of it. When collective groups of people, be it governments or societies, when they use their power 
to oppress those in lowly positions. Corporate injustice says our power at your expense. And on top of that, Israel has given themselves up to the worship of pagan gods, and they've become incredibly immoral as a result. So God has had enough. He sends Amos. And Amos shows up on the scene, and he's warning the people of Israel of God's coming judgment. But then we make it to our passage in chapter 5, and we see that Amos's tone shifts a little bit as he confronts the Israelites. Chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. The word for lamentation or lament in the Hebrew translates to a dirge. And a dirge is a song of mourning that you would sing at a funeral. So Amos, if we're going to put ourselves in his shoes, he's processing Israel's corporate injustice. He looks at a nation and sees this nation that was once themselves oppressed, now become the oppressor, and it breaks his heart. And so for our purposes, what, meant, what is the actual definition of lament? Well, the word lament is extremely layered, extremely layered, meaning if I was really going to unpack the full weight of its meaning with all of its implications, we'd be here forever. And maybe even longer if Tori was preaching. Not going to lie. <laughs> maybe I should have Jason come up here and take him 20 seconds and we'd all be out of here. So Tori's actually preached a sermon on lament last year's really good sermon. And him and Mary both put out a podcast, a well-said podcast on lament. And so I would encourage us to actually check out those resources if you want to dive deeper. But for our purposes, think of lament as Christian mourning. The simple definition is that it's a prayer or a song that expresses sorrow or pain or confusion. And it starts with complaining to God and ultimately ends with trusting in God. And for the people of God, the importance of lament and mourning the presence of corporate injustice in our world, it can't be understated. So if the question is, man, how do we address corporate injustice? Lament is a crucial part of the answer for a few reasons. For starters, lament gives us an opportunity to align our heart with God's heart. I mean, when we look at Amos, we see that he's not just lamenting because what he sees makes him sad, right? His lament is rooted in something much deeper than even his own personal opinions. Amos's lament, he, he laments because he knows that the corporate injustice he sees is completely missing the mark of God's heart for Israel and God's heart for humanity. And here's why I say that. Verse 2. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel. That word virgin is meant to communicate the idea of being set apart. So Amos understands that God's heart for Israel was to be set apart, but not just so that they can feel good about themselves. God wants to partner with Israel to draw the nations to himself. And Isaiah confirms this, Isaiah 42, 6. God says, I have called you into righteousness so that you can be a light to the Gentiles. So here's ultimately what um, Amos sees. A nation that was meant to be a beacon of light, a beacon of hope to surrounding nations, has become an oppressive nation that sacrifices its children to pagan gods and sells the poor into slavery. And he mourns this, not just because he's personally impacted, but because he knows the heart of God and that God hates this. God hates when people made in his image suffer at the hand of other image bearers. 
And God hates it when it's his people that are leading the charge. Breaks his heart. And so Amos shows us that lamenting, mourning, is a crucial part of the process when it comes to addressing corporate injustice because it aligns our hearts with God's. It reminds us that all of this injustice we see doesn't just break our hearts. It breaks God's too, and therefore it should break our hearts. And this is ultimately what keeps us from falling into indifference. This is what keeps us from falling into apathy. Now, there's another thing we really need to understand about lament. If we truly desire for laments to align our heart with God's heart. In Jewish culture, it was actually custom um, for you to pay people who were professionals at lamenting to come to your funeral, to come to the funeral you were doing and to mourn alongside you. And the goal, they, they would wail and mourn, and their goal, their hope was that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between people who were actually mourning and people who were there to collect the paycheck. There's a story in Mark 5 where Jesus tells, um, uh, that tells of Jesus raising a little girl from the dead. And when Jesus arrives at the house, he sees all of this commotion. These professional whalers are there. And when he tells them that the girl is, is sleeping, that she's not dead, in a split second, they all go from mourning loudly to collectively laughing at him as if Jesus was some sort of comedian. And I remember when I first read that passage, I thought their response was a little weird. It was almost like they broke character, but now it makes sense. In a moment's notice, you could tell that their sorrow was purchased. Wow. And so what did Jesus do? Verse 40, he put the fake lamenters outside and brought with him those who were genuinely lamenting. Now, why do I share this? Because I know it seems kind of random. Jesus himself showed us that there's a difference between those who are lamenting because their hearts are genuinely broken and those who are lamenting because of what they get out of it, because they're paid to. Now, why is this important in an election year? Because it's still true that not everyone who laments publicly not everyone who publicly laments injustice or calls you to lament injustice has a genuine heart. And if we're not careful, even our hearts, even our laments can be laced with a selfish agenda. And so I'm going to give a pretty weighty example of this in order for it to stick and click even more. You know, it's discouraging that something horrible can happen in the world and our initial impulse, and I'm not immune to this, but our initial impulse is to use it as an opportunity to make a political statement. And so a deranged gunman takes out a movie theater full of innocent people. And for some of us, the first thing we'll think or say is, see, this is why we need gun control. Or see, this is why we don't. But a heart aligned with God's heart will first see and lament that people made in God's image have had their lives wrongfully taken. Lament. Let's not lament with a selfish agenda. And let's understand that CNN and Fox and politics, uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle want to use our laments over injustice to trick us into building their kingdoms, not God's. They want to use our lament to stay in business. And I don't want us to fall for it. Genuine lament will align our hearts with God's heart. Doing that will keep us from that pitfall. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. 
So how do we address corporate injustice? As the people of God, we lament. We mourn. We allow our heart to align with God's heart, right? And if our hearts align with God's hearts, if that happens, we won't fall for selfish agendas. And we'll check ourselves when tempted to grow apathetic or indifferent towards corporate injustice. We won't validate or invalidate the suffering of other people, even if we don't understand it. Because though lament may engage our feelings, it doesn't ultimately rest on what we feel, but rather is based on God's heart that every human being made in his image be treated with dignity. One of the things you rarely hear is that the movement to abolish slavery in the U.S. was largely influenced by lamenting Christians who held a biblical worldview of God's heart for humanity. And so John Kofi, a history professor at the University of Lancaster, he wrote an article on how Christian conscience had the greatest influence on the abolition of the slave trade. And in his article, he quotes an English poet from the 1700s named William Cowper, stating, when, when William Cowper contemplated slavery, he lamented that the natural bond of brotherhood is severed. Every reader of scripture should know, wrote Cowper, that souls have no discrimination hue, alike important in their maker's view, that none are free from blemish since the fall and love divine has paid one price for all. You see, the Christians of that time that risked their lives and their livelihood to stand up to oppression, they did so not because it was the cool thing to do. They did so because their lament was rooted in God's heart for the value of a human life. And so what can we learn from all of this as we address corporate injustice? Well, for starters, before we go off trying to be the hero, we need to align our hearts with God's. And lament is how we can do that. So Amos laments Israel's injustice and reminds them of their impending judgment. But then he says that there is a way that they can repent and continue to live. There's a string of hope in the process of him warning of God's judgment. Verses 4, 6, and 14. Verses 4. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. But then when he gets to verse 14 and 15, they sound very, very similar to verses 4 and 6, yet they're also really different. They're all synonymous with one another, but there's a distinction between those verses when compared to 4 and 6. Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the mercy gate. What, uh, what Amos is doing, he's hyperlinking all three verses in order to remind Israel that their vertical relationship with God is directly tied to their horizontal relationship with others. And that is not a new concept for them or for us if we really think about it. And so let's do a two-part pop quiz. How many commandments were on the stone tablets that God gave to Moses? Say it with some confidence now. That's okay. All right? Someone like, huh? <laughs> All right? Hey, and if you didn't get it, don't sweat it. There's hope. Serve in kids' ministry for a week, and you'll know more about the Bible than I do. All right? <laughs> Tori's laughing nervously, like, oh, I hope that's not true, right? <laughs> hope that's not true. Get off the stage, Yusuf. 
Okay, part two of our pop quiz. Not as easy. How many of the Ten Commandments have to do with our vertical relationship with God, and how many of them have to do with how we treat other people? Did someone say divide by five? What did she say? <laughs> Doing the math. I don't know. Let me carry the one. I don't know. Three of them have to do with our relationship. With, they all have to do with our relationship with God, but three of them directly pertain to how they relate to God. Seven of them pertain to how they treat other people. The Ten Commandments. Amos gets this. Why, this is why he hyperlinks all of those verses. Seek God and live. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the city gate. In other words, true worship of Yahweh will result in actively seeking justice and mercy for the lowly. Right? Because you become like what you worship. Lest we think what Tori said last week was just some sort of catchphrase. It's real life. And Amos shows us that here, that true worship is seeking God. And if Yahweh is the God that you are truly seeking, it's Yahweh's heart that yours is aligned with, you will actively seek, you will actively work to seek the good of other people. Those two ideas are married together in the Ten Commandments. And so Amos is attempting to reintegrate their understanding of what it means to seek God. It means you seek justice and mercy for others. In other words, we address, as we address corporate injustice, what starts in our hearts as laments should rightly work its way to our hands as we do what we can in our strength to advocate, to serve others. And Amos isn't just saying this. Amos himself is living proof of this. Remember Amos, he was of lowly status. He didn't have very much. He's a shepherd. He didn't have all the resources in the world. But what he does have is a heart that's aligned with God's heart and a prophetic gifting and two legs to walk 10 miles to confront Israel's hypocrisy. He does what he can to address Israel's corporate injustice. And there's a very important lesson in here for us that will keep us from one of the extremes that I mentioned earlier. And it's this, as Christians, we can't do it all. We can't do it all. Y'all hear that? We can lament, we can and should care about all injustice, all of it. We can pray and ask God to move, but we can't practically seek justice and mercy in every area where there's corporate injustice. We can't, it's not possible because we're not God, we're finite. Other than prayer, we can't possibly do something about everything. And this doesn't mean that we grow apathetic or indifferent. We can and should do something, but we can't do everything. And so how do we interact with corporate injustice if that's the case? We lament all injustice, we care about all of it, and we seek God and we seek the good in, of others in whatever ways we can, knowing that we can't possibly do it all. And so here are the implications of this. If there's an area of justice or ministry that you're really passionate about, here is the right expectation you can have on your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is right to expect them to care. It, it, it is right to expect for them to want their hearts to break for what breaks God's heart. 
It's right to expect them to seek the Lord in prayer and to consider whatever ways they can help. But it's possible that the Lord has lit their hearts on fire for a different area of injustice. It's possible that he's called them to proactively seek the good of the oppressed in a different area. So yes, we should care about all injustice, but don't demonize your friends if God has called them somewhere he hasn't called you or whatever. You don't know what I was trying to say. He might have called them somewhere that he hasn't called you and he's called you somewhere he hasn't called them. Does that make sense? Now, if we're lazy, if we're not doing anything to leverage our privilege to help those in need, then you're right to lovingly challenge us. Emphasis on lovingly. But just because someone's mission field might be different doesn't mean they're not pushing back darkness. And it doesn't mean that they don't care about the ways that you're pushing back darkness. We can't bear the weight of trying to fix it all. I actually think there are a lot of people in our church that are a good example of this. There's a community group that came to mind as I was actually writing the sermon. Um, I've never been to the Weber East community group. Um, you're in that group? Nice. They were, a bunch of them were here on the first service, so I didn't know. Oh, we got, oh, we got Paige and Joss. They're in it too. Okay. So they came to mind. I've never been there, but for a while now, I've heard of a really cool rhythm that they've practically implemented into their CG meeting schedule. See, they meet weekly like most community groups, but once a month, instead of meeting to talk about the sermon, they'll meet during the normal CG time um, to make a ton of sandwiches together. And then they'll group up to pass these sandwiches out to the homeless in Austin, which is super dope. That, that's their way of seeking the good and serving others. Now, how ridiculous would it be if I saw them doing that and I was like, are you kidding me? Do you know how many homeless people are in San Marcos or Buda or Kyle or Dallas or China or India or Africa? So you're seriously going to make sandwiches for the people in Austin when there are a million other places that need your sandwiches. Y'all make me sick. That'd be weird. If lament is what keeps us from growing indifferent, then understanding this will keep us from allowing our indignation to turn into bitterness towards other people that are doing good in different ways than we are. Wherever East, kudos to y'all. Seriously, it's amazing. What an amazing rhythm. And as a church, yeah, we can clap for that. And as a church that desires to practically serve Austin, how amazing would it be if every CG did something like that? maybe had their own mission field or one place, if you will, that they visited once a month in place of their regular meeting? What if they were on mission together? We see that Amos found his lane as a prophet and a preacher to address corporate injustice. He practically used his gifts and the calling that God gave him to seek God and seek the good of others, and we should do the same. Mm -hmm. Lastly, when it comes to addressing corporate injustice, we intercede on behalf of others. I mean, Amos has been doing this, if you haven't noticed. He's interceded on behalf of the oppressed. But when we get to chapter 7, Amos once again switches gears a little bit. You see, up until now, Amos has interceded for the oppressed. He's stood in the gap for them. But in chapter 7, God gives him a vision of just how devastating his judgment of Israel is going to be. And Amos then begins to intercede for Israel also. 
Verse 1 of chapter 7, God shows Amos a vision of locusts eating all of the grass in the land. Now, we read that in our culture, and it's difficult to really make sense of what that means, right? If you're not a fan of cutting grass, it may sound like God is offering to have a bunch of locusts do it for you. I mean, that, that sounds kind of nice, but it's not nice. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, locusts are used as an instrument for God's intense judgment. This is no slap on the wrist. Remember, Israel was an agrarian society. It's not like they could grow crops in a lab like we do now. They relied heavily on crops and livestock to survive. So what Amos sees is a famine that will completely demolish Israel and its economy. He sees a vision of just how devastating and terrifying God's judgment will be for the people of Israel. And we see his response in verse 2. When they finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh Lord, God, please forgive. Amos, so moved to compassion, begins to intercede, not just for the oppressed, but now for the oppressor. Twice, Amos requests that God show mercy. And God's response to Amos is the same both times. Verse 3. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. The Lord answered Amos' prayer and chose to hold off on his judgment a little while longer, giving Israel even more time to repent. And if I can be honest, as we've explored all the passages in Amos, this one bugs with me the most. It messes with me. God is fed up with Israel's wickedness. So he's about to drop the hammer of justice. And the natural tendency of my heart is to say, yes, finally, God, destroy them. Destroy those who would abuse and oppress the weak and the vulnerable and innocent. I don't think it gets more evil than that. Destroy them. I can't lie to you. That's the natural bend of my heart. So imagine my shock when I see that Amos, the one who's stood in the gap for the oppressed, the one whose heart is so aligned with God's heart that he laments corporate injustice, the one whose heart is so aligned with God's heart that he actively seeks the good of the oppressed, but then also ask God to extend mercy to the oppressor. What? You see, naturally, that does not sit right with me. And the reason why is because I need God to align my heart with his. Not for the oppressed, I have a heart for them, but for the oppressor. There's my confession, but let me turn it back over to you. Like, what if I told you that God's heart towards the worst human being you know or have ever heard of isn't that they would burn in hell forever, but that they would repent from their wicked ways and receive his mercy? Would you still want to align your heart with God's heart if I told you that? Make no mistake, God will judge evil in its fullness. There is not a single act of evil that will go unpunished for those who do not repent. Not one. But what if I told you that God's heart's desire is that the wicked would repent? Don't take my word for it. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. 
If addressing corporate injustice requires we align our heart with God's, not just in our laments or just in our seeking good of the oppressed, but to intercede and pray that the oppressors themselves would repent. If that's God's heart, will we still align ours with his? Amos does. And this isn't to say that evil on this side of eternity should go unpunished or without just consequences, but God wants the souls of even the wicked to be saved from eternal judgment of hell. You know, I've mentioned I'm definitely a part of the camp that desperately desires for Jesus to come back in power to judge all evil in all of its forms for good, and he will. But a while back, I remember God asking me a very simple question. Yusuf, what if Christ decided to return the day before you got saved? Like the day before. He's coming back to judge evil in its entirety. And if evil is anything that goes against God's heart as reflected in the Ten Commandments, then I'm in trouble if not for the redemptive work of Christ. Because I don't know about you, I've broken more commandments than I've kept more times than I can count. Yet as KC reminded us in 2 Peter, Christ in his patience waits yet another day so that in his mercy, those who don't know him would have the opportunity to repent and escape eternal judgment. That's my testimony. And if you're in Christ, it's yours too. And so how do we as God's people address injustice? How do we address corporate injustice, well, we align our hearts with God's. We let it move us to lament when we hear of injustice, move us to seek the good of others however we can as we seek him, and move us to intercede both for the oppressed and the oppressor, that they may repent and receive mercy just like you and I have. That's what Amos models for us, and this is the wisdom that we are going to need to adhere to if we plan to navigate the heaviness of corporate injustice in a healthy and godly manner. And so we've ultimately seen that addressing corporate injustice starts and ends with a heart that's aligned with God's. There's only one problem. It's that according to the Bible, the very presence of sin in our hearts makes us incapable, naturally incapable, of adopting God's heart towards anyone or anything. And Genesis 3 would tell us that it's the sinful heart of mankind that lies at the root of all corporate injustice, wickedness, and oppression. Jeremiah knew this well. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But all along, God knew that in order to rid the world of corporate injustice, we would need a brand new heart that was even capable of aligning with God's heart, a heart that isn't gripped by the effects of sin. And through Ezekiel, God promised to one day provide just that. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And it's through Christ that God fulfills this promise. In fact, Jesus himself is the greater Moses. During his time on earth, he was constantly addressing corporate injustice, but not just because his heart was aligned with God's, but because he was the physical manifestation of God himself. As you study his life, you see clearly that Jesus didn't just address injustice or oppression, 
but he willingly chose to enter into oppression himself. Motivated by love, Christ set aside his divine privilege. He stepped out of heaven to become a weak and vulnerable baby who shortly after birth would have to flee for his life from a bloodthirsty, oppressive king who saw his birth as a threat to his corrupt power. Jesus entered into injustice and oppression. He was born a Jew and grew up under the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire, a nation that burned Jews alive, lighting the roads with their bodies. As an example to others of what happens when you challenge their power, Jesus himself entered into injustice and oppression. He saw firsthand the oppressive nature of Israel's corrupt religious system and how it exploited the poor in the name of God. Yet where Israel's leaders failed and where you and I fail on a daily basis to align our hearts with God, Christ did not fail. He addressed corporate injustice to perfection, healing the sick, lifting the lowly. But although he was perfect, the religious leaders bore false witness of him because they hated him and wanted him dead. And in the greatest act of injustice and oppression known to mankind, God's very own people handed God's one and only son over to a Roman government to be tortured and murdered on a cross. Jesus didn't just address corporate injustice and oppression. He entered into it to put an end to it once and for all. He allowed our sin, the very root cause of all oppression, to oppress him to the point of death in order for us to have the opportunity to seek him and live, not just now, but for eternity. On that cross, where justice and mercy collapsed into a moment, he too lamented. He cried out in grief. He too interceded, but not just for you and me, but even for the very people killing him as they're crucifying him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Who does that? Interceding for, praying for the forgiveness of those who are actively taking his innocent life. How is that even possible? Only God himself or someone who has a heart aligned with God's heart could possibly address corporate injustice in such a manner. All to suggest that it doesn't matter who you are in here. doesn't matter what you've done. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet God in his mercy has allowed yet another moment that you would turn from your sin, trust in Christ, receive his mercy, and be given a new heart. A heart capable of partnering with him to push back darkness and the world around us. So for those of us in Christ, what does this practically look like? Well, we talked a lot about lament. So... I think one of the most practical things we can do when it comes to seeking the good of others is find an area, if you're not already doing so, to serve the least of these. There are tons of people in our ministry or in our church that are involved in different ministries that serve the lowly. So maybe it's FAM, our foster advocacy ministry, or maybe it's going on a short-term mission trip to help with the religious injustice of people that don't have access to the gospel, not knowing Christ. Maybe you join the Weber ECG and help them serve the homeless every month. I don't know. We can't do everything, but we can do something. 
And so let's do what we can to address corporate injustice with a heart that's aligned with God's heart, that we would lament, we would seek the good of others and intercede just as our Savior did for us, that the lowly may be lifted up and that all would repent and find life in Christ until Christ returns to bring about justice and mercy in its fullness once and for all. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, the injustice we see is barely scratching the surface of all that you've seen from the very beginning of this earth. And yet you choose to love. You chose to step out of heaven, to become oppressed, so that all of us who have sinned against you may have the opportunity to seek you and live. There is no greater definition of love than that one. That if we are in Christ, he doesn't just allow us to escape eternal judgment, but he gives us eternal riches. To the, the right, the privilege of knowing him as a son or a daughter, knowing him as our father. No greater definition of mercy than that one. And so God, would we remember that being in an election year, as we're exposed to the corporate injustices that are happening around the world, would we align our hearts with yours? Would we lament? Would we do what we can to seek justice and mercy? And would we intercede not just for the oppressed, but for the oppressor that they may find life in you? Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.